Welcome to the Net Ministries podcast. Welcome to the Net Ministries podcast. I'm Matt Reiswig. And I'm Dan Driver. And we work for an organization called Net Ministries. At NET, we've noticed that a vast majority of Catholic youth are disconnecting from the church during their teenage years. So, to reawaken their faith, we train teams of young adults, and we send them to minister in parishes and schools across the nation. But also, we're doing a podcast. Dan, do you want to explain the podcast? Yeah, basically, the podcast is hopefully for you as a listener to challenge you to love Christ and to embrace the life of his church. Great. And today we have an interview with one of our alumni. His name is Father Brian Park. Dan, do you want to talk a little bit about your interview with Father Brian? Yeah. When I was talking with Father Brian, he said there's a lot of misconceptions that people have about Catholicism. And he was referring to people who aren't Catholics having misconceptions. But he has his top two misconceptions that Catholics have about themselves. So we're going to discuss that, and I'm super excited to hear what he says about it. Yeah, Father Brian is an outstanding communicator. Uh, Anytime he gives a homily or a talk or leads a discussion or anything, it's always uh, really interesting. So we know you're really going to enjoy it. All right, here we go. Interview with Father Brian. Why don't we start with priesthood for dummies? Like, what is a priest? What is his relationship to the people? What is a priest? Well, a priest is a lot of things. But I think fundamentally, a priest is meant to be a living icon of Jesus Christ, who was the high priest. And when we think about a priest, from just a a very basic definition of a priest, a priest is anyone who offers sacrifice to God. That's what makes a priest different than like just a kind of a a minister, right? A priest is someone who offers sacrifice to God. And all throughout the history of humanity, there have been priests in different cultures and different religions and priestesses, men and women who offer sacrifices to God or the gods, right? And the reason that I'm a priest is because I stand in the person of Jesus Christ to offer what we believe is the one true sacrifice, which is the body and blood of Jesus Christ. So the fundamental role of a priest is to offer sacrifice, and as a Catholic priest, to offer the one eternal sacrifice of Jesus Christ. I mean, that's the the heart of to be an icon of Christ who offered his life for the salvation of souls. And so I'm called to do the same, and through my ministry, especially through the Eucharist, to offer sacrifice for the salvation of souls. How do you become a priest? How do you become a priest? Well, it's interesting because when I was growing up, I didn't even know that. It's it's funny. I never even, it's one of those things I never even thought about. You know, when I grew up, I grew up at a parish where my pastor came six months before I was born. So he came in the summer of 1980 and then he retired the summer of 2003. He was there for 23 years. And so he's, he graduated the, he, after, summer after graduate from college is when he retired. So I, I knew one pastor my whole upbringing. And because there was only one priest the whole time, and he was an older guy, especially later on, great priest. But I never saw young priests, so I didn't know anything about seminaries or formation. So literally, if someone said, where do priests come from? I was like, I don't know. They grow up from the ground or something. It, it never crossed my mind that real human beings actually do this. I just assume like, oh, they're just there. I, I know it doesn't make a lot of sense, but I, did, I just never thought about it. But And a lot of people don't either. So priests are very real human beings. Trust me, I'm one of them. And I know many of them. And we talk about the call, right? The vocation, vocation, the Latin word vocare, which means to call. This call comes from God, from the Holy Spirit, into a man's heart at some point in his life. Some guys, it comes very young. I know guys that are priests now who they were five years old, six years old. They were in kindergarten, first grade, when they first had a sense in their heart that they wanted to be a priest, that God was calling them to be a priest. That was not me. Other guys are me when I was a young adult. I was probably 19 or so when I first, I was a sophomore in college when I first started thinking about becoming a priest, when I first started hearing this call. 
other guys is later in life. I know guys that have gone to the seminary when they're in their 60s. So it's going to vary from guy to guy when that first spark of the Holy Spirit happens in the soul to start moving a man towards priesthood. But then very practically, how does a guy become a priest? Well, he goes to seminary. A seminary is a school the church has for men to study for the priesthood. And here in the United States, um, seminaries, the main program that a guy has to go through is a four-year program in graduate theology. And it's called a major seminary. There's a, you know, a few, probably 15 or 20 major seminaries in the United States, I guess. And it's a four-year program to study theology at a graduate level and to do a whole lot of other formation, spiritual formation, pastoral formation, to help a guy prepare for priesthood. In order to get into that four-year theology program, that graduate seminary program, a guy has to have, in this country, a college degree and a background in philosophy. And so there are other seminaries called minor seminaries or college seminaries where young guys go to get their college degrees and study philosophy at the same time in a seminary context. Then there are guys like, and then they go off to the major seminary, to the graduate seminary for four more years. Then there are guys like me who went to just, I went to Texas A&M. I had a traditional, it's a public school, traditional kind of big college experience, which was great, great school. So I had a college degree, but I didn't have a philosophy background. So guys like me, a lot of places have a special program called pre-theology, which is a two-year program where a guy who has a college degree but no background in philosophy in two years can get all your philosophy requirements done and then head off to the four-year theology program. So for me, I did four years at Texas A&M as an undergraduate student. Then I was working for Net Ministries for four years here at the Net Center. And then I did two years of philosophy and pre-theology and then four years of theology before I was ordained a priest. So I, I've, I've heard that when you are ordained a priest, there is something that changes within you. You change in some way um, in an indelible mark. I don't fully understand what that means. Is it like you're a different kind of being? Like do you transform into some kind of super being? Yes, we become superheroes at ordination, so to speak. Um, no, we talk about in our the- sacramental theology, we talk about three of the sacraments that provide an indelible mark on the person's soul who receives them. It's like in these three different sacraments, baptism, confirmation, and holy orders, when a person receives one of these sacraments, it's like God brands the soul. That's the analogy. I think it works the best. Like Think like a cattle rancher, right? He has his brand, and he brands his cattle so that everyone knows that that cattle belongs to him. And therefore, there's this special relationship between the, the ranch owner and the cattle that he is going to provide for this cattle, and this cattle is going to provide for him, right? Mm-hmm. And in a similar sense, that's what happens at baptism. It's like God brands our souls with his image, with his mark, and he says, you now belong to me. You're now my son. You're now my daughter. You belong to me. You're part of my family. At confirmation, there's this new branding that comes to the soul that says, now I'm branding you to be a missionary, to now go out to the world to proclaim the good news that Jesus Christ is alive and, the, and all the teachings of the church, et cetera, that the salvation comes through Christ and his church. So you're branded to be this missionary as you go out and filled with the new power of the Holy Spirit. Then in holy orders, there's a new branding of the man who's ordained a deacon, priest, or bishop to brand him to be an image, an icon of Jesus in a very special way. The deacon is meant to be an image of Christ the servant, Jesus who said, I've come not to be served, but to serve. In a real way, the diaconal character or or branding we talk about, character is the same word we use. Um, The diaconal character is one that says, this man is being conformed to Christ the servant. Then the man who's ordained a priest after that is being conformed to Christ the high priest who came to offer the sacrifice, the sacrifice of his body and blood for the salvation of the world. And then the man who's ordained a bishop receives that, that kind of another brand, a newer branding in which he is meant to be like Christ the king, the one who governs and reigns. And some people think that we, we misunderstand sometimes authority, that authority means power, and we think of it in a worldly sense. But no, Jesus taught us what true kingship, what true leadership's about. It's about 
humble servant leadership, that Jesus was most clearly a leader on the cross when he's suffering for his people. And so the bishop is called to do the same. The bishop is called to really lay down his life in servant leadership for his people. And so, and the idea is that the characters build on top of each other so that in a real way, I'm, I'm also, I'm a priest, but I'm also a deacon because I was ordained a deacon as well. The bishop is both bishop, priest, and deacon and retains all those characters. That's why a bishop sometimes at a, a big mass, an ordination mass or a big liturgy will sometimes wear a dalmatic, which is the deacon's vestment underneath his chasuble, just to remind him that he's still conformed to Christ the servant as a deacon and called to, to serve his people. Sounds painful, all that branding. Did you notice a difference when you were ordained as either a deacon or a priest? Did you feel like you had been branded in a different way? No, not so at it was all. Just, I'm it's sort of like a birthday, you know, like when people say, oh, you're now like 36. Do you feel older, right? Do you feel, do you feel any older? You're like, no. No, it's an interesting thing too about just the vocation to the priesthood versus like the vocation to marriage. That... In a certain way, of course, everything, so much changes externally um, when a guy's ordained a priest, especially the diocesan priesthood, where you go from being basically a full-time grad student in formation to being a parish priest when those lives are totally different. So, of course, externally, a lot of things change, but I remember the, I remember the morning after my ordination getting up in the same bed I slept in the night before and I'm brushing my teeth, I'm looking at myself in the mirror and I'm like, whoa, I'm a priest now. Hmm. But I don't feel any different. It's just, I'm a priest. Whereas what's, what's, oh, the same thing too, I guess, is marriage. I mean, you may not, I don't know, maybe you, maybe the morning you woke up after your wedding, did you feel like you were a married man? I mean, I I felt uh, like the vocation discernment was over and that was about it. Like, I I specifically remember, this might sound a bit weird to some of the listeners, but walking down the aisle saying, in a few minutes, I'm going to know that my vocation is marriage. Like, know it without a shadow of doubt. So that was the only, like, difference in feeling. Um, Waking up the next day, it was just like... Oh, this is kind of strange that I'm in bed with my friend. <laughs> right, right. And of course, that's that's the big that well, that should be the big change for from the engaged couple to the married couple is that whoa, like there's a woman sleeping next to me. Yeah, we're, we're sharing a bathroom now. Yeah. We're sharing a bedroom. We share a. I mean, this is new. That's how it should be. That's how God plans it to be. Cohabitation is not a good way to prepare for marriage. <laughs> uh, it's a dumb way to prepare for marriage. But yeah, no, I didn't. I didn't feel any different. But I think the priestly identity. This we talk about the um, um, ontological change that takes place at baptism, at confirmation, and at holy orders when the soul is branded. the The soul is changed. Our being is changed by these sacraments, and Again, this is an objective reality, but subjectively, it can take time for a guy. It did for me too, just to, and it still does. I'm still growing in my priestly identity. And it's one of those things where I know how I viewed priests growing up before I was a priest. And I think we all view priests a little differently. And there's a there's a good thing there. There's, there can sometimes be a bad thing there too, right? It, it, it depends on the situation. But I remember, especially being a brand new priest, what was always so clear to me when I had the sense of priestly identity was when I'd walk into a hospital room. Hmm. It was so much different than when I would do it as a seminarian. You know, I did some pastoral training. I was a chaplain at the VA in Minneapolis one summer, and I visited dozens and dozens and dozens of hospital rooms. And there, I'm just a layman, right? And and it was fine. There was good experiences and good ministry that happened there. But it's just so, it is so much different to walk into a hospital room when you walk in there as priest. It's, it's hard to explain. There's a sense of, of comfort, which is great because people have faith and they believe that the priest is an icon of Christ, that he is a man of God that comes when I'd walk into a hospital room as a young priest and to anoint someone. Cause there's a sense, especially from the relatives, you know, Oh, thank God father's here. 
and they don't even know my name. They just know I'm father, that yeah. father's here, and they know father's going to come and bring the grace of Christ with them. And that's something I couldn't do in this, obviously in the same way before I was a priest, when I'd visit people. I love that. I love the sort of, I mean, there's a real sense of you are an icon of Christ in that moment when you come in and there's relief given to people. They don't know who you are. They don't know if you're a jerk or if you're actually a nice guy, but they are relieved just by the presence of you there. That's really cool. And that's what the priest is meant to be, right? It's not about Brian Park. It's about Jesus Christ in me and through me. Now, we don't want to get too... I mean, he works through Brian Park, right? Right. And But fundamentally, it's about his glory, and it's not about mine. So you, you don't necessarily feel like different inside, but there, there must be like a difference in terms of your perspective. You know, from becoming a layman, somebody sitting in the pews, and then now you're looking out into a sea of souls, maybe most of which you have direction with confession with you've married you've done their sacraments so you know the the this group of people like how has that change been for you it's one of the greatest graces of of the priesthood especially the Dawson priesthood those of us who are in parish ministry parish priests that that i get to be invited into people's lives and thus we experience this one primary grace of the priesthood which is spiritual fatherhood that I am a father, right? That you're a father too. You're a, obviously a physical father and I'm a spiritual father. And while they differ in kind, they're still the same kind of, I said, these are my children. And just as you know your kids and their whole lives, in a sense, I'm called to know my children as well too. And their ups and downs and their struggles and their hardships and their joys and sufferings and be able to walk with God's people to get to know them. It's just a tremendous it's a tremendous privilege. It's one of the greatest things about being a priest, the whole idea of being a spiritual father, to walk with people in really exciting times and to walk with people in really, really painful times. And yeah, it's one of the key graces of the priesthood. You talk about knowing your children well. Um, I have two little ones. One is two and a half and the other one is just a year and a month. And Sometimes I get very, very frustrated with them because there's something that's so clear to me that this doesn't need to be hard. Like you don't need to be screaming and writhing right now. All you need to do is say, yes, please. And then you get the cookie. Um, like what are, do you have frustrations with just the things that you experience as a priest with either um, the flock or the church as a whole? Well, of course, right? I'm a human being. And we always, I'm sure plenty of people get frustrated with me and I get frustrated with people at times. And that's kind of our human fallen nature. You know, we must be patient with this, with those who are young in their faith or their, whose faith is weak. And obviously I, I have to recognize the fact that I've received tremendous blessings in my life from God, tremendous formation through working here at NET, through six years of seminary. I've, I have a formation in my own life that most people don't have. So I've been blessed in so many ways and not, not that I'm better than my prisoners or anything, but that, so there's a sense I need to be patient, right? And maybe they haven't received some of the formation that I have. And so my, my mission is to help bring them that formation and that conversion, that evangelization through the power of the Holy spirit. I think one of the main things that, that tends to be, that tends to be difficult these days is the whole idea of Holy communion. Hmm. I think there's a lot of misconceptions about Holy Communion amongst Catholics. You know, we often talk about Catholic misconceptions. We often think about Protestants and their misconceptions about Catholicism. And of course, there are many. You know, you guys worship Mary and you worship the Pope or something like this. Mm -hmm. Well, there's plenty of Catholics who have misconceptions about Catholicism as well, too, and what the church actually teaches, what the Word of God actually teaches. And I think, unfortunately, Holy Communion is one of those that I see, and I know from a lot of my brother priests, this can be a source of challenge, heartache at times, of people's misunderstanding about what the church teaches about Holy Communion, specifically the requirements to receive Holy Communion. Okay. So... What are the requirements to receive Holy Communion? Just to be clear, right? There are several. And again, the reason the church has all these, it's not like some bishop invented this in the fifth century, right? That this comes from the word of God through the scriptures and through the tradition of the church. And so one of the key 
first and foremost, one of the key requirements of receiving Holy Communion is baptism, that you're baptized. That we talk about baptism is the sacrament, it's the gateway to all the other sacraments. Only someone who is baptized can receive Holy Communion. Why? Because the baptized person is the one who has sanctifying grace in his or her soul, has been elevated to to the supernatural level, has a supernatural organism within them that needs to be fed by the body of Christ, another supernatural gift. I remember one time someone even kind of complained to me, you know, why couldn't we give um, a non-Christian Holy Communion? And I was almost just like, what are you talking about? I mean, how could I give a non-Christian, whether it be a Jewish person, a Muslim, just a non-baptized person, like, how could we give them Holy Communion? They're not one of us. And that's a hard thing for people to hear these days because we don't like division, right? We, and, and that's right. Division is a bad thing. That Why can't we be more welcoming? I guess that's the one thing that is the challenge when it comes to Holy Communion because people hear these rules and regulations about communion, which we'll get into more of them in a second, and they hear that as being unwelcoming, Father, why don't you let everyone come to receive Holy Communion? Well, because of what Holy Communion means. I mean, a great analogy for why only Catholics, and we'll get to more of these requirements. Well, let's stick with the requirements first, then we come to my analogy. So one's got to be baptized to receive Holy Communion. One has to be a member of the Catholic Church. Obviously, we know there are plenty of people who are baptized that aren't members of the Catholic Church. One has to be in a state of grace. And this is, this is the big one where I think a lot of Catholics either have misconceptions about it or they're just completely ignorant of. And that's, that's on us as a church for doing a poor job of catechizing, especially our youth, about the importance of being in a state of grace to receive Holy Communion. What is a state of grace? It's another way of saying that sanctifying grace is in my soul. I first received sanctifying grace at baptism. Sanctifying grace washes away original sin. It makes me a child of God. It gives me the promise of heaven, eternal life in heaven. It raises me to the level of God. So sanctifying grace is a really good thing to have. And if you die with it, you go to heaven. I mean, it's, it's like you, it is your ticket to heaven because it's God's life inside of you. And it, if I have sanctifying grace in my soul, that means that I am in communion with Christ and his church. Christ in the church, you can't separate the two. Christ is the head, the church is the body, St. Paul tells us. Christ will never divorce his church. So to be in union with Christ is to be in union with the church. So one who has sanctifying grace is in union with both. And once you have it, you have it. And there's only one way you can lose it, and that's by committing a mortal sin. If someone commits a mortal sin, which is a grave sin, some sort of grave matter, uh, which we tend to say is a direct violation of one of the Ten Commandments, you know it's wrong, and you freely choose it. If you hit all three of those things, grave matter, you know it's wrong, you freely choose it, you commit a mortal sin, you've lost sanctifying grace. Now you're no longer in communion with Christ and the church. And so you can't receive communion. You can't re- receive the sacrament of communion until you're back in communion with Christ and the church. How do you get back to in communion? That's what confession's for, right? That's why Jesus instituted the sacrament of reconciliation, to bring people who have sinned gravely after baptism back into communion with Christ in the church and to restore sanctifying grace. So that key requirement that I'm in the state of grace to receive Holy Communion is so important because St. Paul teaches us in 1 Corinthians chapter 11, if I receive communion and I'm not in a state of grace, then actually the reception of Holy Communion hurts me. It's actually another mortal sin the church teaches us. So to receive Holy Communion in a state of mortal sin... You're, you're being hurt. It's hurting your relationship. It's not helping your relationship with God. So we talked about how in order to receive Holy Communion, one has to be baptized, a member of the Catholic Church, in the state of grace, and have fasted for at least one hour. And I think one of the big misconceptions, especially in the United States, kind of West, definitely the United States is my only real experience, and really just in Anglo cultures, Anglo parishes, is that it's this idea that if I come to Mass, I have to receive Holy Communion. The church doesn't teach that. The church has never taught that. The church has said that you have to come to Mass every Sunday and every Holy Day. That's the obligation, right? That's one of the precepts of the church. Just attend Mass every Sunday and every Holy Day of obligation, unless you have a grave reason to miss Mass. 
you're sick, you're caring for a sick child, et cetera, something like something that's serious, not sleeping in to play golf. So people, that's the obligation is to come to mass. No one has an obligation once at mass to receive Holy Communion. Now the church would say, if you are in the state of grace and you have fasted for an hour and you are at mass, then yes, you should always receive Holy Communion in that situation. But one should always discern at every mass whether or not I should receive Holy Communion. And if I come to Mass on Sunday because I'm fulfilling my obligation, I want to worship God, I want to give Him praise, but I realize, gosh, I have a grave sin on my soul that I haven't brought to confession, then I should, I should not go to Holy Communion. And I've done nothing wrong, right? But I should get to confession as soon as I can so I can be restored to sanctifying grace, restored to communion with the Church, and so I can receive the Most Holy Eucharist. What if you were a public figure of some description? Um whether that was a local politician or maybe uh, somebody who does a lot in the local church, so your name is well known. Um, what about like not going up to receive communion and people seeing that and saying, "Well, what you know, like revealing your essentially revealing your the state of your soul, saying that I'm not in a state to receive communion." Is there is there anything to say to that? Yeah, again, I mean, that's where Jesus said, judge not lest you be judged, right? So that's where it's on us as the congregation. We shouldn't be looking at this person going, why isn't he going to communion? What did he do? I mean, that's, look, that's being judgmental, right? And Jesus says that that's not charitable. And so he may have, who who knows what reasons he may not have received communion. He may be have an upset stomach and not feeling well. And, but he, we found a way to get to mass cause he wanted to get to mass, but he's worried if I receive Holy communion, I may not be able to keep it down. Mm. I don't know. That's possible, right? Maybe he didn't keep the fast, right? Maybe he did eat Cheetos on the way in. He just wasn't thinking, or he had a big swig of coffee and he's like, Oh, what was I thinking? And he's like, well, I, I shouldn't receive Holy Communion. So we don't know why he's not doing it. And to to make judgments, oh, because he did something really bad, that would be judgmental, and that would be a sin on my part. How many times could I receive communion in a day? The church says you can receive communion twice in one day. And what? And why? Why twice? Why not just once or as many times as you want? We want to avoid the idea that, you know, if I can. I just go to like 20 masses all day long. You know, maybe I'm retired or maybe I'm not, I have a day off and I'll go to a uh, 615 mass, then a 730 mass, then an 830 mass, then a 945 mass, and I'll attend a funeral at 11, and then I'll find some midday mass at some church. You don't want to, that's not the idea that, the idea that somehow if I receive more and more Holy Communion one day is going to make me holier, right? As As I often pray when I receive Holy Communion, I remind myself there's enough grace in one Holy Communion to make you a saint. Because it's Jesus. It's Jesus. And so we don't want to have that kind of scrupulosity about the Eucharist that I just need to more and more, 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 more Eucharist. That, that's, that's not what Jesus intended when it came to the Eucharist. And really, I would say, too, that when it comes to reception of Holy Communion, if you're going to receive it multiple times one day, I think ideally it should be different liturgies. So, you know, if it's a Wednesday and you go to a daily Mass on Wednesday morning, well, why are you going to a daily mass on Wednesday evening too? Yeah. I mean, that's great. You want to pray more. I mean, I think I would say, well, you went to mass this morning. Go do a holy hour in the afternoon. Go spend some time in an adoration chapel. You wouldn't need to go to mass again. Now there are things like, you know, it's a Saturday, right? And I go into a wedding on a Saturday at 2 o'clock in the afternoon. But I want to. The reception is going to start later, and I want to catch a Sunday evening mass to get my obligation met. And so I go to, I go to the wedding at two, receive Holy Communion there, and then I catch the four thirty mass at the parish after the wedding, and then I go to the reception. Well, then obviously you could receive communion twice in that day, or sometimes you're helping out. You're a lector, you're a sacristan, or something like that, a server, and you got to serve multiple masses or help out at multiple masses. Even though it's the same liturgy, it's like it's two Sunday Mass, it's the same liturgy. Well, then, yeah, sure, receive communion twice. You're there to help out. You're there to serve. The church says you can receive communion twice. Great. But again, I think this whole idea that we, we're all back to misconceptions, right? Some things that I, I, I'm, I wish 
we as Catholics would know better, again, these requirements for receiving Holy Communion. And I think the pushback we get, especially in our culture, again, this isn't very much Anglo cultures. You'll, you'll go to a Spanish mass where you have a lot more Latinos, you know, people from Central and South America, uh, Mexico, and maybe a quarter of the congregation will come for communion. Half the congregation will come for communion. Half won't. Uh, three quarters won't. There's a, there is a general greater reverence, I think, in Latino cultures for the Eucharist, which is great, right? They, people know that if I'm in a state of sin, I don't receive communion. Now, the pastoral challenge then is, okay, let's get those people in the state of grace so that they can receive communion. It's kind of like it's the, the pendulum is on the opposite end in, in certain communities when it comes to communion. But especially the, the real challenge with communion becomes in like funerals and weddings as priests. And we all talk about this as priests. It's, it's a difficult situation because we know at funerals and weddings, you're going to have a lot of guests. A lot of non-Catholics are going to be there, which is great. They're welcome to be there. We want them to be there to come and pray with the couple or to pray with this family or their own family, right, for a losing a loved one. And so it's very difficult because we want to minister to those people in that moment and reach out to them with the love of Christ. But as soon as they hear, whether in like a worship aid or announcement, you know, from the from the pulpit about communion is only for Catholics in the state of grace or something like that, there there's plenty of people that can be off put by that. I mean, I can think of multiple occasions where after a funeral, I don't know if it's ever happened at a wedding, but definitely after funerals where an angry person has come up to me, and it's almost always a Catholic, actually, and comes up to me, and how unwelcoming it was that I said that you know only Catholics could receive communion, uh, that Jesus would not be so mean, and how could we be so unwelcoming? And again, this, is, this gets back to my key analogy, right, of why only someone who's baptized, a member of the Catholic Church, and in the state of grace receives communion. Uh, I love my mom. Do you love your mom? I yeah. love my mom a yes. lot. Yes, good. But my dad also loves my mom. And yeah. I, I hope your dad loves your mom too. Yeah. My love for my mom is different than my dad's love for my mom. That's gross. Well, it's true, right? But still, you didn't have to bring it up. I know, but here's my point, right? There's a way that I express my love for my mom that's different from the way that my dad expresses his love and his communion with my mom, right? And that's a beautiful thing. My dad and my mom can do something that no one else can do with them, right? That just the two of them can do to express their love and communion, right? That's what makes marriage so special. That's what makes marital love so special. My love for my mom is not a marital love. It's a different type of love. And so just as we would recognize that a couple needs to have something special just for them in which they can express their love for each other, should we not as Catholics have a special way that we and only we express our love and communion with Jesus and his church? That's what Holy Communion is. It's when his body comes into us. I mean, there's all kind of marital analogies in the celebration of the Eucharist, right? And therefore, we're not saying that we hate you because you can't receive communion. We're saying this is our special way of expressing our love for Jesus and his church. Now, we invite you. This is what evangelization is all about. We invite you to come and become Catholic. When people sometimes say, you know, why can't, why can't I receive communion? I want to receive communion. I say, well, do you want to become Catholic? No. Well, then you can't, re- you can't engage in this special act that we do to express our love and communion. So that's one thing that you uh, like notice that Catholics have a misconception about. Um, are there any other things that sort of fall into that category as well? I think the other kind of major thing that I see, purgatory is real. And the church has never not taught that. The church continues to teach that. I think some, unfortunately, some Catholics may think that, oh, that's like an old thing, purgatory. We don't believe in that anymore. No, you can read the catechism that was published in the mid-90s. Very clearly teaches what the church has always taught about purgatory. So the, the misconception I, I see most clearly, and especially you see it at funerals, unfortunately, is again this idea that all, all souls go to heaven, right? Everybody goes to heaven. Unless you were like really, 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 really bad. 
so like you know hitler goes to hell that's fine you know the um terrorists go to hell rapists go to hell you know really really bad people do but i mean come on everyone else goes to heaven right well we don't know that <laughs> right um you're making a judgment there. Jesus, again, Jesus, judge not lest ye be judged. To judge someone's soul is in heaven without the authority to do so, which we believe the church has when it canonized saints. But to, to make a judgment about heaven or hell yeah. would be a, to be a judgment that I can't make. I, I often get this question, you know, is this person in heaven? Is this person in hell? I say, I don't know. It's not my job to be the judge. It's God's job. Jesus is the supreme judge, right? He will come to judge the living and the dead, we say in the creed. So it's Jesus's job to judge, not mine. And so it's mm-hmm. my job to pray for the souls of the faithful departed. I'm meant to pray for the dead. And that's the constant tradition of both the Old and New Testaments. That belief was not challenged until 1,500 years into the Christian tradition. I mean, think about that. Like, no, never was it even thought of that we don't pray for the dead. Because why? Why would we pray for the dead? We believe, I mean, if a soul's in heaven, there's no need to pray for that soul, right? They're in heaven. They're experiencing the beatific vision. They're face to faith with God. They're in perfect communion. All their sins have been washed away. They've been perfected. They need no prayers. If a soul is in hell, we can't help them. That's their eternal state, eternal damnation. Therefore, there has to be a third state, and the scriptures reveal this as well too, along with the, the tradition of the church, that there is this third state in which a soul is being purged of any temporal punishment that remains from sin, any imperfections, before he or she enters the kingdom of heaven. The analogy I often use, I did in my homily this morning when we talk about purgatory, is I take two scriptural metaphors. St. Paul often used the analogy of a race, that the Christian life is like running a race. It's like a marathon. It's hard. It's challenging. And heaven, one of the key analogies for heaven is a banquet, right? The wedding feast of the lamb, this great banquet. Well, to me, it only makes sense. If you spend your whole day running a marathon and you've got a great banquet to go to in the evening, well, then you should probably do something in between the marathon and the banquet. You should probably take a shower. You should probably clean up. Right? That's what purgatory is. The race is over, but the soul needs to be purified of any final sins, purgation of temporal punishments that left because of sin before entering the kingdom of heaven. And so what's what's the pastoral challenge I see is when people just automatically assume that grandma's in heaven, right? Grandma died, grandma's, oh, she's in heaven. Well, what happens when we make this judgment that we shouldn't be making? is that we forget to do the most important thing often. We don't, we don't pray for the person because we don't think we need to pray. Well, why do we need to pray for the person? The person's in heaven. Well, we don't know that. And thus, by making that judgment, you're depriving that soul of something that he or she may really need at that point, which is our prayers. The great example of St. Monica. In the Confessions, Augustine writes about Monica's death. And as Monica's dying, one of her dying words to Augustine was, remember me at the altar. Remember me at the altar. Here's a saint telling her saintly son, a priest, a bishop, remember me at the altar to pray for my soul once I'm gone, because that's what I need most. I need your prayers. And so that's what I'm, I, I know I'm, I know I'm trying to continue to catechize my people on the importance of praying for the dead. That's the greatest thing we can do. We don't assume heaven. We don't assume hell. We don't, even in really bad situations too, we can't, again, I can't, the church has not declared anyone officially in hell, right? Because we don't know. Only God can do that. And so we pray. That's our mission. Okay. So we cannot make the pronouncement of whether somebody's in heaven or hell. The church hasn't made the pronouncement that somebody's in hell, but they have made the pronouncement that somebody is in heaven, aside from Jesus, Our Lady, um, and the saints. So we can't say that we know that anybody is in hell. I, I, I'm, I'm, not, I'm not necessarily believing this. I'm just, I'm presenting an argument to you. And we also know that God is infinitely merciful. And we also know that purgatory is the place for somebody 
to get to a place where they can tolerate heaven and the presence of God. So can we um, uh, presume that everybody is in purgatory? Right. You're getting at the question of, will all people be saved, right? Will all people eventually get to heaven, whether they go through a long purgation period or not, right? And there's definitely a spectrum in the church's history about different theologians differ think different things. On one end of the spectrum are the St. Augustine's of the world who say that very few people will be saved. And there's a, there is, in my opinion, a strong biblical argument for this, right? Matthew chapter 7, verse 14, Jesus says, broad is the road and wide is the gate that leads to, um, to death, to damnation, whereas narrow is the path and small is the gate that leads to life and how few find it. But then on the same, in the same breath, we have Revelation talking about the countless numbers of saints in white robes. Correct. Right. So, right. And that's a good argument for the other side that some people say that we can hope, we can hope that all men will be saved, right? Um, I, I definitely would say personally, I'm a little more in my, where I'm at in my own theological journey, I'm more closer to St. Augustine, I would say, on that side of the spectrum, because to me, the biblical evidence just seems to point that way a little more. That doesn't mean it's going to be just like a hundred people. I mean, there's think how many billions of people have lived just in the last in the in the history of the world, and we have no idea when Christ will come back again, right? As far as we know, Saint John, his vision of heaven doesn't mean it was you know Saint John lived in the first century, and when he's having this revelation on the island of Patmos, it doesn't mean he's seeing heaven like at the exact same moment, you know, because heaven's outside of time. Yeah, he could have been seeing probably was heaven at the, the completed, f- completed yeah. time. And Jesus may not come back for 500,000 years. I mean, we have no idea when Christ is going to come back. And so there, you could have hundreds of thousands, hundreds of millions of billions of souls in heaven, and that could still be a small percentage of human history, of humanity in history, right? Um, we, the, the, but the point is we don't know. Would I be great if all of humanity could be saved? Absolutely, that would be great. There's also some good biblical evidence that I would argue that Judas is in hell. Yeah. Well, and also a lot of uh, saints that b- believed that, right? Right, and so there, we know there's been private revelations over the centuries that saints have had of hell and seeing thousands of souls in hell, right? Now, the yeah. private revelations. You don't have to believe them as a Catholic, but they don't contradict public revelation either that hell is a real place, and again, I don't know how many people are there. That's up to God. But again, I think there is some good biblical evidence that Judas is in hell. It's just hard for me personally to Jesus's words in Matthew's gospel. Matthew's gospel where he says, you know, that um, better for him never to have been born. Yeah. I mean, how can you how can you interpret that any other way that he's in had these in that he's in hell? Because even if Judas spends all of history in purgatory he's eventually going to be in the kingdom of heaven for all eternity. And that's better. Yeah. And at that point, it would have been like a twinkling of the eye. And right, right. They, It'd been nothing. Yeah. So it's, um, I think there is some good biblical, based on that statement of Jesus, that Judas is in hell. There's a great sorrow there. I mean, I, I don't even know the guy, right? But there's a sorrow to know that there's probably at least one soul in hell. I think there is one. But uh, remember, hell is just the great response to the love of God. And, and I really find that uh, C.S. Lewis's sort of imagery and that people choose hell ultimately. Like the decisions that they're making in their life stack to the point where people would rather reign in hell than serve in heaven. Right. Of course, the misconception there is that, well, reigning sounds better than serving, right? Yeah. Well, no, serving in heaven is the greatest thing ever because it's what I was created to do. Someone who lives a life far from Christ, no faith, lives a sinful life, but then I want to go to heaven. Well, why do you want to go to heaven? You don't pray. You don't worship. You, you live completely sinful life. You seem to hate God now. Why would you want to be with him for all eternity? Uh, and this is you know, the idea that if someone from hell could come to heaven, some, they would be bored, you know, because they never grew in a taste and a love for eternal things. Anyway, back to the main point, I think, we just need to make sure we're helping our fellow brothers and sisters in Christ realize how important it is that we pray for the dead and that our prayers are powerful, that, that we should have masses offered for our deceased loved ones, that we should offer rosaries for them, offer indulgences for them. And that's a whole nother podcast on indulgences, right? But 
these are great things. These are charitable things. These are good works we can do to help our brothers and sisters who have gone before us. My hope now, I, I haven't actually been able to write this down anywhere. I need to get a will down, but at least it's going to be recorded here so people have at least some evidence well, if I good. die. <laughs> um, but uh, I have been, and this will sound morbid, but I think All Souls Day, Halloween kind of time, it fits in. Um, I've been thinking about my death and specifically about what I want my funeral to look like. I want a requiem mass said for me, and I want several masses after that said for my soul. I want people to come. I don't necessarily want them to feel mushy when they leave and good about my life. I want them to love me. I want them to come. I want them to be sorrowful that I have passed, and I want them to know that I need prayers. Right. Like that's ultimately the impression that I want to leave. That God is merciful, but we have to implore Him for His mercy. That's p- part of the reason why we, you know, we just talked about like, well, can we really know if anyone's in hell? But if everybody's going to get to heaven, then what's the point for praying for people to assist them to get to heaven? Is it to get them to heaven sooner? Well, okay, right. If there is no hell, then there is no ultimate justice. Yeah, right? that there are. There is great evil in the world, and people do evil things, and those evil that has consequences. And sometimes those consequences don't come in this life. And so, just in our, we as human beings have such a strong sense of justice. We we see injustices everywhere. It frustrates us, it angers us, as it should. But we also know there's got to be some point where justice is done, right? Where true justice is done. And God, who is the supreme judge, who is all good, all knowing, all loving all just, all holy, will provide the perfect judgment in the end. As I always tell people who get worried about who's going to heaven, who's going to hell, and I say, I don't know, I remind them, God is the perfect judge. He doesn't make mistakes. At the end of time, every person that's in hell is going to know exactly why he or she is there. And every person in heaven is going to know exactly why he or she is there. No one is going to get hoed. No one's going to be at the end of time like, oh, man, How did I end up in hell? This is so unfair. No, you're going to know exactly why you're there, and it will be completely fair. It'll be completely just because it'll be God's judgment, who is perfect justice himself. Again, that's St. Monica. Remember me at the altar. Remember me at the altar. The funeral, the primary purpose of the funeral is to pray for the soul of the deceased. Do we want to celebrate the person's life? Sure. There's nothing wrong with celebrating someone's life and the good that he or she did and their family and their friends and their career. That's good, but that's not primary. Primary is we come to praise God, to worship him, and to offer the gift of Jesus' body and blood for the salvation of the deceased person. That's what a funeral is about, primarily about to pray for the deceased soul because that's the most loving thing we can do for that soul. And that's what we're about is doing the loving thing. So we talked about today uh, two things that you have found that Catholics have misconceptions about themselves, Holy Communion and um, funerals, basically praying for the dead, that we need, we have this responsibility to pray for the dead. We also have a responsibility to view communion in a particular way. That's great. It's theoretical. What are some practical things that our listeners can do to start implementing? When it comes to praying for the dead, one of the best things I would do is to have masses offered. It's one of the best things you can do is to call your parish, call your parish secretary or whoever does it at the parish and say, I'd like to have some masses offered for some deceased loved ones. And usually almost every parish has this big calendar, sometimes electronic now. And, you know, they book some parishes will book masses out a year, two years in advance because there's such a demand. Other parishes don't have as much demand. Maybe your parish does. Maybe it doesn't. But all parishes take mass intentions. And to have masses offered for your deceased loved ones, especially people who have recently died, is a great, great thing to do. The rosary is another powerful tool, especially during this month of November. This is a month where we especially remember the dead and pray for the dead, to pray the rosary for the dead. Visiting cemeteries, there's actually a plenary indulgence one can receive by visiting a cemetery and doing some prayers on this day, All Souls Day, and then maybe even at other times, I need to look at the indulgence book, but visiting a cemetery, visiting your loved one's cemetery, going there to pray the rosary, going there to offer some prayers, beautiful thing to do to pray for our deceased loved ones. One of the first things I would think when I think communion, I would think of confession, right? How important frequent confession is in the spiritual life. The church has always held up the practice of a monthly confession as a worthy thing. 
to go to confession once a month is a beautiful thing. Now, if someone is struggling with some grave sin in his or her life, then I would, of course, encourage go to confession as frequently as you need. If you got to go to every week, you know, the, the more and more we come to confession, the more and more we receive grace and strength to overcome the sin in the future when we come with that true repentant heart. Pope Francis said at the beginning of his pontificate, which I often encourage penitents with, when Pope Francis said, Jesus never tires of forgiving us. It's we who get tired of asking for forgiveness. So I would just encourage people, this the importance of uh, a good practice of frequent confession. Eucharistic adoration, I cannot encourage enough, is a great way to help me fall more deeply in love with Jesus in the Eucharist so I can appreciate even more what I'm receiving when I do come to Mass. I think, too, just making sure even just very practically in your schedule, you plan out meal times and when I go to mass so I'm not so I can keep the one hour fast. I mean, that's what I would some very practical things I would encourage for for communion and drawing closer to Jesus in the Eucharist. So those are some practical things I'd recommend. Tell me about your podcast. So this was it was several months ago, probably back in the spring, I'd say. And it was on a Monday morning, and myself, Father Kevin, who I live with, Father Kevin Finnegan, the pastor of OLG, and Father Eric Lundgren, who's the pastor down in Shakopee at St. Anne and Joachim. Father Eric and Father Kevin were together in Faribault for four years, so they're good friends. So he comes over a lot to hang out, and we're friends as well, too. Anyway, so we were just... Um, sometimes like it would be on Monday morning. You know, he, he spent the night Sunday night. And we're just like sitting around, just having breakfast, and we just start talking about our homily. And we were just we we're sitting around talking about just parish life and what did you preach about last yesterday? How did it go? Any feedback? And as we're talking, I'm like, we should totally record this. This would be a great podcast. Just like priests sitting around talking about parish life and talking about their homilies. And so that kind of was where I got the idea to do like a Monday morning Catholic quarterback. It's funny because there's Sports Illustrated has a website that's connected to Sports Illustrated called the Monday Morning Quarterback. The head reporter's guy named Peter King. He's very well respected in the sports journalism field. And he, uh, so I was, I had to make sure I couldn't, I was worried about, um, what's the word? Uh, like legal rights. In like the copyright. So, copyright, yeah. yeah. So I was like, <laughs> I'll be the Monday Morning Catholic Quarterback. Because I figured Monday Morning Quarterback is a, pretty generic phrase that people use so that I don't think there's any way you can copyright copyright such a generic phrase but anyway I just threw Catholic in there just to be safe and you play football as well yeah well yeah I like football so it's kind of, it was kind of a I think it's good for a podcast to have a creative title yeah and so what I've done is I've only done five episodes and I started doing one every Monday but then that started getting a little tiring at times because I would do it on Monday on my day off, but I, I, I just interview a priest and there's really kind of four segments. We, um, well, if really, I guess kind of five segments, first segment, just tell us about the priest vocation story, a little bit of your background and which is interesting because sometimes that's short, sometimes that's longer. The last one I did was with father Jay Kife down at Benedictine, who's a f- former Hindu convert to Catholicism then became a priest. Obviously now he's a monk, you know, so not Jay. much of a story then. Yeah, right. So we spent a lot of time with that first part talking about his background. Uh, the second segment we talk about we what does a Monday morning quarterback do? He he or she breaks down Sunday, right, and analyzes everything that happened the day before. And so the second segment we break down Sunday. What did you preach about? We talk about your homily, go on tangents. You know, oh, what did you pre- this is what I t- preached about? Did you get any feedback, etc.? Then the third segment is. What do we do for the third segment? Oh, anything just going on in parish life with Father Jay? I did just uh, religious life for dummies. Like, let's just talk about religious life. What's a novice? What's a postulant? Uh, what's your formation? Pro- what's a monk? What's a brother? What's an abbey? What's a monastery? All these basic terms that some things I even didn't know. Um, so third segment, kind of parish life. A fourth segment could be a topic we wanted to discuss or just um, a question from our listeners. And then the fifth segment is a quick one at the very end. Here are the readings for next Sunday without putting a lot of thought into it. What would you preach about? But it just gives the the people of God a chance to see a little bit from our perspective what it's like to preach and sometimes the feedback we get and 
what's parish life like from the priest's perspective. Just I, my goal is because I want it to edify the people of God, and I, I hope I hope it's doing that. You can find my podcast on iTunes. Just search Father Brian Parks podcast on iTunes or on Google Play. Thanks so much. Thanks for joining us today, and uh, God bless you and your ministry. Thanks, Dan. It's great, great to be here. God bless you all. All right, welcome back. Uh, now it's time for our second segment, where Dan and I both recommend something to the listeners. Dan, why don't you go first? Sure, yeah. I wanted to recommend an app. It's also a Mac and PC available app, as well as iOS and Android and different things. It's called Verbum. Verbum. I don't know. How, how would you say Verbum in America? Verbum. Verbum. I think I said it with an accent. Verbum. It's... Ver, ver, verbum? Yeah. Yeah, that's right. That's right. That's Verbum. It. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Verb, verbum. Verbum. <laughs> <laughs> so I want to recommend Verbum. Uh, it's a Catholic app. Verbum is the Latin word for word, as in the logos, as in Jesus. And you can load it with like lots of books that are interconnected and searchable. And you can put Bibles into it and do Bible studies, word studies. It's free. The books aren't. I own Verbum. And I have the like paid version, so I, I, I think I threw like two grand at this thing to f- load it full of Whoa. Catholic theology and philosophy. And it's all interconnected, so it shows you where different scripture passages um, show up in your favorite spiritual writings, theology teachings, all of this different kind of stuff. You can get it at verbum.com or on the iOS app, um, and it will come preloaded with some free resources, including a great Bible study. So that's my recommend. That's great. So for free, you get the Bible study? Mm-hmm. That's awesome. I am also going to recommend a book, even though Dan didn't recommend a book exactly. Uh, this is a book that we got for our Christmas gifts this year, and that's called I Am Going which is, by the way, also the name of a children's book. But is this one is about the uh, last words of the saints, which is pretty cool. It's by Mary Kathleen Glavich. And uh, what it is is it just lists a whole bunch of saints, lists their last words, and then has reflections on that, um, which is just pretty cool. For example, St. Dominic Savio, last words, what wonderful things I am seeing and then has a whole reflection on that. Or uh, Pope Jan- Pope St. John Paul II, his last words were, let me go to the house of my father. Um, it's like a reflection style book where you could do one each day, which I'm not naturally drawn to exactly, but there's something pretty cool about this is the last thing a saint said on earth. So again, I am going reflections on the last words of the saints Mary Kathleen Glavich, check it out. Also, in that book, uh, there's some illustrations, which I appreciate, which are illustrated by uh, someone who served on NET a number of years ago named Christopher Santer. So again, recommend that book. Thanks so much for listening to this episode today. Uh, we hope that you enjoyed it. We'd recommend, uh, or we would welcome any feedback you might have to offer. You can always Email us at podcast at netusa.org. Also encourage you to uh, write us a review at iTunes. Uh, five-star review. Not I, I don't think, can you do half stars? Uh, I don't think so. I think, I okay, don't think that it's works. It's got to be five stars. Yeah, um, all about the five stars. Yeah, we, we'd appreciate your support uh, in that way. And also, uh, in any feedback you might want to send us to, let us know what kind of subjects, what kind of topics you might be interested in in uh, hearing about on our podcast. So with that, we'll say thanks so much. We'll see you later. You've been listening to the Net Ministries podcast. Check out our show notes and more at netusa.org slash podcast. You can email us at podcast at netusa.org.